Mareku and Hasebo and Amushikila Basitu and Alimureke and Otula Majide Kruti. Izino Lumurevi Shikila Pose. No, 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 Tile Baraki, no, ho, 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 for te bashela, ha, ha, Isula dikidi moza, te borove abaste, Isele mukrate sumiatisto. For the time has come for you to take some big steps. Big steps. That will cause a great change of scenery in your life. And now. The mountains shall be removed and hindrances shall be removed and things are turning even now. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement, angelic reinforcement, angelic reinforcement. Vika hata anda ata ora bata rata anda eke eke manda rasa. I count to three right now and then release yourself in the heavenly language. One, two, three. Go ahead. Shekara babara babara bashantara bakara bahantai. Mandara bakantara bashambara bahantai. Shekiri antara basampara bakatara mahantai. Mura bakabara bahantara bashekiri antara bahantai. All right, good morning. Uh, thank you for being in worship with us today. And let me just say, if you're in our overflow room, we want to welcome you as well, as well as those of it, uh, you who are joining us on Facebook Live. Uh, thank you for being a part of worship today. And, and I've not said this in a while, but if you're on Facebook Live, if you don't mind, would you just go ahead and share uh, this video? You may just, with sharing a simple uh, post uh, change somebody's life today. So if you don't mind, just go ahead and, and do that for us. As you can see, we are today looking at the second part of a sermon we started last week on the issue of speaking in tongues. This is one of the most controversial, one of the most divisive issues in the Christian world. Churches have divided over this issue. Denominations have divided over this issue. And so you may think that this morning what we are talking about is a little bit academic. However, if you are a follower of Christ, knowing what you believe on this issue and why you believe it is really important. Um, if you missed last week, let me encourage you to go back and watch that video. That will give you some context about what we're talking about today. And then also, if you missed January 10th, that's where we introduced this section on miraculous gifts uh, that will give you context as well. So last week, if you were here, you know that we looked at two different definitions of speaking in tongues. The first definition is the gift of speaking in tongues, also translated languages, is the ability to miraculously speak in a human language previously unknown to the individual for the purpose of sharing the gospel through what would otherwise be a language barrier. Now, with this as the first definition, then the definition of the interpretation of tongues becomes this. The gift of miraculously interpreting the words of an individual speaking in a human language previously unknown to the interpreter for the purpose of translating the gospel to those who otherwise would not understand the speaker. 
So those are the first definitions of speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Then the second definition we gave was this. Speaking in tongues are utterances approximating words and speech usually produced during an intense religious experience. A heavenly language not spoken by humans. A language spoken through the Holy Spirit without the use of the mind. Now, with this as the second definition, the interpretation of tongues becomes the ability to interpret the heavenly language spoken by an individual and translate into an earthly language understood by the gathered church. This is taken very seriously, and the congregation firmly believes that the words of the interpreter are God's instructions for the church. So last week, if you were here with us, we looked at three passages in Acts where tongues fit into that first definition. Acts chapter 2, where it was very clear that tongues were known human languages. Acts 10 and Acts 19 that seemed to indicate the same thing. And then as well, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, where Paul, writing about spiritual gifts, said that some people are given the gift of speaking in different kinds of tongues. Not a different kind of tongue that is a heavenly language, but different kinds, plural, many different languages. And so we looked at all of those passages last week, and I concluded last week by asking this question. If all of these passages indicate that tongues were known human languages, not this heavenly language, then why is it that so many Christians today uh, view tongues by that second definition as a heavenly language? Why is it that so many view tongues as what you saw in the video earlier, as a language that's understood only by the speaker and by God? So last week we ended by asking that question. With all of these passages, why is it that people interpret it this way? It's because of 1 Corinthians 14, the passage that we will read today. 1 Corinthians 14 is the most divisive chapter in the entire New Testament. The way that people interpret 1 Corinthians 14 has divided friends, it's divided churches, it's divided denominations. And let me just say, just like I said last week, good Jesus-loving followers of Christ interpret this passage differently. There are a lot of questions that are raised by 1 Corinthians 14. It is not entirely clear. If it were perfectly 100% clear, it would not be divisive. It would not be a controversial chapter. It is divisive exactly because it raises questions that no matter what your view is, you have trouble answering those questions. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you this morning three different interpretations of speaking in tongues and how we view it through the lens of 1 Corinthians 14. Um, I'll give you each of these. We'll read part of the passage, and then I'll come at the end and make some application. So, speaking in tongues, the possible ways to interpret tongues that we read about in 1 Corinthians 14. Number one, tongues are a heavenly, private prayer language. This is the second definition. This is what you saw on the video earlier. 
Let me read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 14, and we will read it through the lens of this interpretation and see if it makes sense. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a heavenly language does not speak to people, but to God. Okay, so far that seems to fit. If it were a known human language, then, well, they would be speaking to people. But if they're speaking to God, it makes sense that it's a heavenly language. Indeed, no one understands them. No one understands them because it's a heavenly language. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. This heavenly language comes through the Holy Spirit and their mysteries to all those who hear it. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening and encouragement. Verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue, a heavenly language, edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. So it's a heavenly language. No one else understands it. It's for their benefit, this private prayer language. And so therefore, this heavenly language only edifies or encourages the one who speaks it. I would like every one of you to speak in this heavenly language. But I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in this heavenly language unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So if you speak in this heavenly language and someone happens to have the gift of interpretation and they can speak in the language that everyone understands what you've spoken in this heavenly language, then it's good because the church is edified. Okay, so that first definition seems to fit with these first five verses. However, there's some issues. Issue number one is this. Heavenly language doesn't fit with the characteristics of the other gifts. Paul spilled a whole lot of ink in chapter 12 talking about the fact that spiritual gifts are given for the common good. He compares the church to a human body. And every part of the body plays a role for the benefit of the whole body. In the same way, everyone has different spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body. And so your gift is different than your gift, but they all work together for the body. If it's a heavenly language that only edifies the person speaking it, it it doesn't fit with the gifts. The other issue is it doesn't fit with the other passages regarding tongues. The ones we read last week, the three in Acts, and even the one in 1 Corinthians 12, it just doesn't seem to fit, and yet Paul uses the exact same wording here. It it seems like to me that if Paul was changing to a different definition of the word tongue, he would have said, hey, I know before... In Acts, maybe even in my earlier reference, that I was talking about known human languages, but now I'm shifting gears and we're talking about a heavenly language. But he doesn't do that. He just dives right into it, almost without explanation, because he assumes the readers need no explanation. Okay, that's the first definition. That's the first interpretation of what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 14. That's a very common interpretation of this chapter. Okay, the second way to interpret it is that tongues were ecstatic utterances picked up from the culture. This is not a common interpretation 
in churches in America. However, I'm giving you this interpretation because this was the belief of the tour guide in Corinth who took us around and explained everything to us about the city and what was going on with the church. Here is why he had this particular view, and this is why this is a very logical view of what was happening. Corinth was located very close to the oracle at Delphi. Uh, Delphi was just up the road, and anyone who was going to the oracle at Delphi would pass through Corinth. If they were coming from North Africa, they would go through Corinth to go to Delphi. If they were coming from Asia, they would go through Corinth to go through Delphi. It was located very close, and so travelers undoubtedly stayed in Corinth on their way to Delphi and then back to wherever their home was. Well, why did they go to Delphi? In Delphi, there was a temple to the god Apollo. Uh, This was the number one religious destination for people from all over the known world. Uh, The story of Delphi goes back centuries before Paul's time, before there was even a temple of Apollo there. Um, There was a point in time where some goat herders had their goats in this certain area, and there was this crevice in the rocks, and they noticed that whenever their goats went close to this particular crevice, they would begin to act strangely. And so these goat herders went there to this place, and they began to experience these hallucinations. They believed that it was some kind of religious experience whenever they stood in this spot. And so they believed that the gods were speaking to them through whatever was coming up from the ground in this certain spot. Now, scholars later have said there were some kind of gases that were coming up that were creating these hallucinations. But from centuries before Paul, temples were constructed there where people would come to hear a prophetess speak in all of these crazy utterances And then someone would translate whatever it was that she said, believing that what she was speaking came straight from the God. It it looks something like this. They constructed the temple over this area. These gases would come up. A prophetess or a priestess would sit in a chair. Sometimes she would stand, and as she stood over this spot where the gases came up, she would just get high, and she would have this ecstatic experience, and these religious utterances would pour forth. And then priests, normally men, would stand around and they would interpret whatever it was that she said. And because people believed this was coming straight from God, travelers from everywhere would come to this particular temple to ask questions of the gods. Farmers would come and ask, what kind of crops should I plant? Tradesmen would come and say, what kind of merchandise should I sell? World leaders would come and ask questions of the gods about decisions that they were facing, mainly decisions that had to do with going to war against another nation. Everyone who came was expected to make a donation to the temple, and because they had made a donation, they would then be entitled to a prophecy. And the priestess would speak her babble, the priest would interpret, and they would then take that advice and go and make whatever decision they needed to make based on the advice that was given. 
the interpretations were almost always very general in nature, very um, cryptic in nature, uh, sometimes very challenging to understand, um, and always having different ways of interpreting the prophecies. One of the most famous stories was King Croesus, who was the king of Lydia um, in the 500s BC. Uh, king Croesus traveled to the oracle at Delphi to ask, after making a large donation, to ask whether or not he should go to war with King Cyrus of Persia. If you've ever seen the movie 300, you're familiar with King Cyrus of Persia. And so he went, paid his money, the priestess did her thing, and the prophecy that came back to him was, if you go to war against King Cyrus, you will destroy a great kingdom. He said, great. He went to war against King Cyrus. He was defeated and he was killed. Later, people came to the oracle at Delphi and they asked, why was the prophecy wrong? They said to King Croesus, go into battle and you will destroy a great kingdom. And the response was, no, the prophecy was right. The prophecy was, you go into battle, you'll destroy a great kingdom. He did, his own. It was destroyed. There was always a way out. There was always some kind of wiggle room where they could say the prophecy was right. Because of that, people from all over the world would come to the oracle at Delphi to pay their money and to inquire of the gods what they should do. Roman emperors came to the oracle at Delphi. It was the number one religious destination. Without question, this oracle at Delphi had some kind of influence on those who were living in Corinth. By the time of Paul, the oracle at Delphi had a temple on top that was a temple to the Greek god Apollo. The main temple in Corinth was to the Greek god Apollo. Somehow that had to have influence on how they worshipped Apollo in Corinth. Almost like a big mega church in some city and then satellite churches in nearby towns saying, we want to emulate the success of this church, and so we are going to copy their methods and their practices. And likely people in the church in Corinth came out of the background of worshiping Apollo, and they were trying to recreate these same kind of ecstatic experiences, hearing from God, communicating with God through these strange utterances, and then recreating that for the church. Okay, if that's the correct interpretation, let's read the passage with that view in mind. Verse 2, For anyone who speaks in this strange utterance does not speak to people but to God. Okay, so Paul here, if this is the case, he's being real sarcastic. And he's saying, yeah, you're speaking in this strange utterance. You're not speaking to people. Speaking to God? I'm not even sure. Indeed, no one understands them. No one can understand what you're saying. It's just these strange utterances. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in these strange utterances edifies themselves. I think Paul would say, I guess. I'm not sure why you're doing it. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in these strange utterances. Again, if this is the correct interpretation... Paul is being extremely sarcastic and basically saying, if some of you are doing it, well, just all of you, go ahead and do this strange thing. 
but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in these strange utterances unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. And again, Paul would be sarcastic here and basically saying, you can't interpret it because it's just babble. You're mimicking what you've seen in the culture in the church, and it just doesn't work. Okay, so what's the problem with this view? There are a couple. One, I think Paul would have been more direct. When you read 1 Corinthians, there are many times that Paul was sarcastic. However, on an issue like this, where they were bringing pagan worship into the church, I think Paul would have just called it for what it was and would have said, stop it, stop it, stop it. He would not have used kind of this coded sarcasm to get them to see the error of their ways. The second issue is this. It just doesn't fit with the rest of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I mean, there is, there is no doubt that somehow what was happening at Delphi was affecting the Christians at Corinth. And, and, and it's not a coincidence that that was going on just up the road and nowhere else in the New Testament is the issue of tongues addressed other than Paul to the church at Corinth and the examples we read about in Acts. Paul doesn't address it with any other church except for this one located by this place where all of this strange babbling and interpretations was happening. There had to be some influence, but I don't think that's what Paul was referencing here. So here's the third interpretation, that tongues were known human languages. Now, if you've been here for this series, you know that in Corinth, in Paul's day, that this city was a major cosmopolitan city. Roughly 500,000 residents in Corinth, which was a big, big city for that day. And because of Corinth's location, travelers would come from all over the world and spend a few days in that city while they were waiting for their ships to be carried across this narrow strip of land so they could avoid sailing all around this uh, Peloponnesus, and they could get to their destination faster and in a safer way. And so people from all over the Roman Empire and even beyond would spend time in Corinth. And so in Corinth, if, if you and I had a time machine and we could go back to Corinth 2,000 years ago and walk in the streets of Corinth we would hear just multiple, multiple languages being spoken. Although Greek was the dominant language, we would hear travelers from everywhere speaking all these different dialects. This is something that we miss. We read the Bible, we read 1 Corinthians 14 with a very American lens. And our American lens says that everybody speaks English. And English really is... the the universal language. However, in many, many places in the world, just to survive, they have to know more than just one language. You and I have the advantage of not having to know multiple languages to survive. Most places, they have to learn numerous languages. When Katie and I were living in Rome, we had to go to language school to learn Italian while we were there. And there was a, a guy, a young man that we got to be friends with who was there and he was in the same course that we were in, going through the same program that we were going through. A uh, young guy named Santi uh, from Barcelona, Spain. Santi spoke, uh, his first language was Catalan. Uh, Catalan is a language that's spoken in, um, in eastern Spain. So that was his heart language. 
as well he spoke Spanish because if he traveled outside of Barcelona, he had to know Spanish. As well, he knew English because if he traveled anywhere else in Europe and anywhere beyond Europe, he had to know English to be able to communicate. And as well, he was learning Italian because he wanted to work in Italy eventually. So just to survive, he had to learn four languages. In Corinth, there would have been a whole lot of confusion, a whole lot of difficulty with individuals trying to buy and sell and converse with one another because they didn't speak a common language. Okay, now let me back up for just a second. If you've been here with us for this series, you know that 1 Corinthians, we call it a book, but it was originally a letter. And it was written by Paul to this church in Corinth in response to a letter that they wrote to him. We have Paul's letter to the church. We call it 1 Corinthians. What we do not have is the church's letter to Paul. We have to assume uh, a lot of things about what they wrote based on Paul's response, but we do not have that original letter. If you happen to find that original letter anywhere, please, please share it with me. I would love to be able to read the letter they wrote to Paul. It would help us make sense of so many things. But Let's imagine for just a second, that this was part of the letter that they sent to Paul about an issue that was going on in their church. Dear Paul, we have a number of people who claim to have the gift of speaking in languages. When Peter was here in Corinth, he talked about what those Christians experienced at Pentecost in Jerusalem. If you missed last week, go and watch that sermon and you can get the full picture of what happened there. And members of our church say they have this gift. They will, in worship, begin to talk in what they say are other languages. Because of this, our our worship services have become quite chaotic. How do you advise us handling this issue? Sincerely, confused in Corinth. You know, like the Dear Abby letters, people sign it that way. You don't really think it's funny, but I thought it was very witty. Okay, so let's assume they wrote something like this to Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 as Paul's response to the church. Let's read it through that lens. For anyone who speaks in a language does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. So Paul is saying you're in worship and you have the gift of tongues and you're speaking in some foreign language. However... The gathered church speaks Greek, and no one understands you because you're speaking in some language that exists somewhere in the world, but no one understands you. You understand it, and God understands it, but no one else understands it. You are uttering mysteries by the Spirit. Verse 3, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a language edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So again, here he's saying, look, you're speaking in this this foreign language, and no one in the church can understand you. If you speak in Greek, the more common language, people in the gathered church can understand you. Verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in languages. Why does he say that? Because there are so many people who are coming to Corinth 
from all of these different lands. And he says, hey, if you have the gift of speaking in languages, that would be great. I wish every one of you did it because when you gather as a church in a courtyard somewhere and someone's walking by and suddenly they hear their native language being spoken, it will get their attention. If every, every one of you is able to do this, that would be great. However, I would rather you, in the context of worship, prophesy or preach or tell truth. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in languages unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So Paul here does give a little bit of wiggle room and he says, if you speak in this foreign language and then someone says, hey, I've got the gift of interpretation and they interpret that, then fine, that will work because it edifies the church and people are able to understand what you're saying. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in foreign languages, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You're just speaking to the air. So here again, Paul says, you've got this gift. You're you're speaking in church in this foreign language. But what does it do? It's, It's like notes that don't make sense. It it just doesn't help anyone if you do this. Verse 10. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. Now, in your translation, that word is languages. This is not one that I have changed. It is languages here. That word is voices or dialects. Paul here is saying there are many, many different languages, different voices, different dialects throughout the world. You see, this whole passage seems to make sense that Paul is talking about known human languages. Verse 11, if I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to that speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit Try to excel in those that build up the church. If any of you have a Bible that is a King James Bible, this word for foreigner is barbarian. That is the word that they used for people who were outside of the Greek-speaking world. It's, by the way, an onomatopoeia. Uh, The Greek word is barbarbos. And they said that people who were not Greek, when they spoke, all they heard was bar, 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 bar. And so they came up with the word barbarbos, which we translate barbarian. The word here is foreigner, a non-Greek speaker. Again, Paul seems to be indicating this whole thing is about foreign languages spoken in the context of the gathered church. Okay, verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a language should pray that they may interpret what they say. 
Paul says, hey, if you've got this gift and you want to use this gift, that's fine, but you need to interpret what you're going to say for the benefit of the church. For if I pray out loud in this foreign language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit through speaking this foreign language, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer, someone who comes in, say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. So here's what Paul is saying. You're speaking in this foreign language, and someone else comes in who speaks Greek, and they don't understand you. So how can they benefit from what you are saying? If I deliver this entire sermon in Italian, and you don't speak Italian, what would you think? Ah, that was nice, I guess. I didn't understand it. I mean, Paul here is saying, if you're speaking in this foreign language, if I'm speaking everything in Italian... How can you say amen to what I'm saying? You can't. You don't understand it. Even when you do understand it, you don't say amen. So we'll just move on. (laughs) Verse 18. I thank God that I speak in languages more than all of you. God had given Paul this calling to be a missionary, to go throughout the Roman world. We have no idea how many countless times he ran into people who did not speak a language that Paul spoke naturally. So God gave him the gift of speaking in tongues so that he could communicate the gospel to those individuals. But in the gathered church, Paul says, yes, I speak all these languages When I'm out sharing the gospel, but in the gathered church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a foreign, unfamiliar language. Paul would rather speak five words that you're able to understand than 10,000 that make no sense to you. Because what good does it do for you? Okay, verse 20. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. I love this line. Paul here is saying, when it comes to evil, I want you to to be ignorant and unschooled. When it comes to sin, I want you to be the least educated person around. However, when it comes to your thinking about issues, about Biblical issues, use your minds, engage your minds, act like adults. Now, I'm going to make a statement here, and this is, listen to me carefully, this is a general statement, and general statements have general application, which means they do not apply to everyone. And so if you say, hey, this doesn't apply to me, that's because it is a general statement, not a specific statement to you, okay? Generally speaking, when I have engaged individuals who have a different understanding of tongues 
from my understanding of tongues. And I point to passages like Acts chapter 2 or even Acts 10 and Acts 19 when I began to debate the issue based on Scripture. Many times they will stop me and they will say, well, look, you just need to pray about it. Or you're just not in tune with the Spirit. Or I, I just feel like this is what God wants me to do. Or this is the tradition that I have grown up in and it just seems right to me. Well, it's fine if you feel that way. It's fine if it seems right to you. But God wants you to engage your mind. God wants you to study how you practice your faith. And God, I don't care how you feel, God has given you instructions in His Word on what we should believe and how we should live it out. And if you disagree with me, based on your study of God's Word, then more power to you, and I am fine with that. However, if you say, I don't care what the Bible says, I just feel this is the right way, then that is a dangerous, dangerous path to go down. And Paul here is saying, hey, when it comes to sin, I want you to be completely ignorant. When it comes to how you are thinking, act like an adult. Then he quotes this verse from Isaiah. In the law, it is written with other languages and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me says the Lord. This is a reference from Isaiah talking about the nation of Israel when they had drifted so far from God that God was basically saying that even when foreigners declare to them in another language uh, what they should be doing is useless. And Paul here is basically saying, look, you've got to quit putting such an emphasis on these languages when the church gathers together. People will not be more apt to listen to you just because you're speaking in this foreign language if they can't understand you. Okay, verse 22. Miraculously speaking in foreign languages then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Well, how is that the case? That's what we read about in Acts chapter 2. All these people were gathered there and these uneducated Galileans began to speak in languages from all over the Roman Empire. And people that were gathered there said, wait a second, these guys shouldn't know my language. How is it they're speaking in my native dialect? And it got their attention and they heard the gospel preached. And that day, 3,000 unbelievers became believers. That's what Paul is saying here. This gift is a sign to get the attention of unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in languages and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? If, if someone who spoke English came in and we were all speaking in multiple languages multiple known human languages, what would people say? Man, that's weird. I'm leaving. I've, I'm going to go to another church where they speak English and I can understand what's going on. That's what Paul is saying here. Verse 24. But if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying or preaching or teaching truth... They are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. 
So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God really is among you. As they hear truth, as they hear God's truth in their language, they are able to say, well, man, this is what I need. I'm hearing truth and I'm responding to truth. Okay, I know this has been super academic, so let me give you three very practical things as we end this section on tongues. Number one, we can disagree and still show kindness. We can absolutely disagree and still show kindness to other individuals. We started this series three weeks ago, or this section on miraculous gifts three, three weeks ago, and several of you have come to me and said, you know, I've got friends, or I've got neighbors, or I've got a coworker, or I've got a family member, and they speak in tongues by the second definition, like what you showed on the video. And We've had discussions, and we've had debates, and we've had some really kind of tense moments. You can have those debates. You can stand firm in what you believe. You can express your beliefs and your views the whole time, still showing kindness, still showing love. There is, there is no reason to take out your sword and tear down a brother or sister in Christ just because they disagree with you. And even if they try tearing you down, the Bible is clear. Show love. Show kindness. Do not repay, repay evil for evil. And so these debates do not have to be uh, controversial and, and, and divisive. You can have this debate with, with still showing kindness. Uh, secondly, emotion is as important as knowledge. Emotion is as important as knowledge. And I will confess to you that I tend to gravitate towards the academic. Give me a book with the history of Corinth. Give me a book that explains all the theology of the passage. Give me, give me some textbook and it, and it points to other passages and it kind of helps everything make sense and I'm just in heaven. I can just sit there and study and get excited and, and love all the academic stuff. However, engaging your heart is just as important as engaging your mind. You can have all the right beliefs. You can have a, compl a completely right list of beliefs, and it's nothing but cold, dead orthodoxy. Meaning you believe the right things, but you're not a follower of Christ because your heart has never engaged. And my fear is, especially in our tradition and in our culture in general, where people say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe even in the virgin birth and the resurrection, that they've assented to a set of beliefs, but their heart has never gotten involved. And they're really not following Christ. And we have led people down a path of thinking that they are saved when all they've done is agree to truths that even the demons agree with because they understand what is true. However, the other side is, if it's all about emotion and you don't engage your mind and you don't have the right beliefs, guess what? You're really excited about a cult. I mean, you're following down a path of heresy, but you're doing it with a whole lot of passion. You're going the wrong way a hundred miles an hour. Both emotion and the mind are important, and we need to engage both when we follow Christ. And then finally, here's the last thing. 
The Holy Spirit is real and active in our lives. Now listen to me. There are some of you that disagree with my interpretation of tongues. Um, And some of you watching online, you disagree with my interpretation of tongues. Um, So I want you to hear me clearly on this. What I appreciate about my charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ is that they have emphasized the Holy Spirit, whereas in my tradition, we have taken the Holy Spirit and placed Him on the shelf and said, stay there and stay calm and don't shake up my life too much. And we forget that as followers of Christ, God has given us this incredible gift in the Holy Spirit and that He is real and active in our lives and that we do not need to walk around as defeated Christians because we have the power of God residing in us. And as you follow Christ, you've got the Holy Spirit to protect you from temptation. Don't ever say, well, I can't resist this sin. No, you've got the Holy Spirit there to give you a way out. You've got the Holy Spirit residing in you to help you make decisions. You are not alone when you are struggling with really hard decision A versus really hard decision B. The Holy Spirit is there to help guide you. Whisper to the Holy Spirit and say, I I need help. Help me here to know which direction to go. And when someone comes at you and they say, I can't believe that you believe in the Bible. I can't believe that you believe in these old fairy tales. How is it that you, an educated person, can still believe all of this? And you're thinking, I don't know what to say and how do I respond? And they seem so smart and they have all of these arguments. You've got the Holy Spirit residing in you to give you the words to say. And in that moment, say, Holy Spirit, guide my mouth, guide my lips. Help me to know what to say here. As followers of Christ, we've got the Holy Spirit residing within us in a powerful way so that we can live out our faith in this broken world. And so I would say, if you're thinking all of this was just academic, and I'm not sure what I can really take from this, take this from it, that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit to show us how to live, not just today, while you're sitting here in this nice church, but tomorrow when you go to school, tomorrow when you go to work, tomorrow when you're dealing with friends, tomorrow when you're dealing with family members, the Holy Spirit is with you to guide you every step of the way.